Hey everyone, welcome to the EcoBite podcast, where we will be diving into topics around the environmental industry. Join me, Cameron Davis, an EcoBots product manager and seasoned environmental scientist, Liv Haney, in a deeper conversation with our guest. If you'd like more context to our conversation and or a crash course on the topic at hand, please view the EcoBite video recording before getting started. Either way, enjoy. I'm Jesse Meyer. I'm the Director of Technology at the Environmental Policy Innovation Center, or EPIC, and this is EcoBite. I was just going to share a bit about my background. My whole career primarily has been around wetlands, wetland monitoring, wetland science, wetland ecosystem benefits. And I had a lot of road gaps uh, or like stop gaps throughout that process. And the first I would say is like in grad school, I was really focused on where should we cite wetland restoration projects for the maximum benefit? Like what is the scientifically proven best way to do it if I'm a coastal community or if I'm inland or if I'm in a really urban area or um, rural? And to do that, I needed really good data and I needed to know where are wetlands What are the impacts? What is the current land use? And each of those data sets were at least 10 to 15 years out of date. And if we look larger beyond just Massachusetts, where I was working in the U.S., some of the wetland data sets are like 50 years old. Alaska's not even mapped. Um, And that was a really aha moment for me of like, we don't have good data to inform and scientifically drive where we should be doing some of the most impactful work um, when it comes to wetland restoration and conservation. So in grad school, I studied uh, water resource engineering and environmental policy. And my thesis was really focused on where we should cite wetland restoration projects and how successful are we in the restoration that we're doing. So as part of that, I did kind of two things. One was a large GIS model on prime locations for wetland restoration based on where wetlands currently are, where there's been impacts, where the we need more stormwater management or we need more support for coastal flooding. And the second part of that was doing fieldwork on different restoration projects that had happened in Massachusetts to say, all right, six months out, a year out, three years out, what are we seeing? And how quickly does wildlife and the benefits of restoration start? How does it come to fruition? I then, during grad school, was trying to do a bit of fieldwork on wetland uh, science and what can we track in terms of benefits following a restoration project. Um, First, that was thwarted by my fear of snakes, terrified, was not a field sciences person, but I tried and we had to, um, we put all these stream gauges throughout because there was a river running through the wetland restoration and we wanted to know how the stream flow changed. And I had to carry an umbrella with my laptop with a USB cord. Sometimes the like monitors that we put in were just cut and stolen. And sometimes it was like, so hard to physically get to the location to try to plug in my laptop and extract the data. This was about five years ago, maybe a little bit longer. Maybe everything's changed and things are in the cloud, but our monitoring and sampling plan really depended on where we could easily get to. And I couldn't get that data on a regular basis because it depended on when I could get out to the field and extract the information. And sometimes there's like weird, weird technology errors. I wanna say maybe we fix that, but who knows? But that led me to really think, one, I can't do field work, terrified of snakes, like there has to be a better way to do this or a way that can complement the folks that want to be in the field. Um, So after grad school, I landed at a technology company called Upstream Tech that was using satellite imagery to monitor large landscapes and 
I was really excited to think about the application for wetlands. We quickly realized, right, satellites might make sense in some scenarios. There's daily imagery, there's weekly imagery, there's biweekly imagery, but also we might need drones um, because they have much higher quality information. And so I was really thinking about this and educating myself and the stakeholders that might be able to use this on what type of information and technology makes sense for wherever you're at in your restoration project or design. Um, and quickly hit some other barriers, which was folks were scared, like didn't know what it was. And me working at the technology company, they didn't want to listen to my opinion because they're like, you're just trying to sell me something. And there was a real dearth of information within the wetland community and environmental community writ large around when could emerging or established or innovative technologies be useful in the environmental work that I'm doing. Um, and I didn't see that community really anywhere. Um, and, and then what would happen when we would have these conversations is maybe one district was trying it, one state was doing it, but there wasn't cross-sharing and there wasn't consistency in terms of when and how this information could be applied. That also led to sometimes there being regulatory barriers or perceived regulatory barriers, so just shut down the conversation entirely. At that point, I thought, okay, where could better policy or process or folks on the other side of the room that had a technology background be helpful in making use of innovative tools for environmental decision making? So I landed at Epic, where I now lead our technology team. And that's what we think about all day is just what are the tools, people, processes, regulations, changes that are necessary to complement environmental decision making or complement our use of technology and environmental decision making. Learned a bit, uh, still trying to figure it out, but um, I see a lot of value in technology and complementing our restoration work, and hopefully we can figure out how. Some of the things that I would look forward to in the next couple of years is up-to-date information about where wetlands are. Uh, that should be consistently available for all the U.S. Acoustic monitoring to hear the sights and sounds of restoration. eDNA to track what is there if we can't necessarily see it. And just a publicly available information much more easy. Um, so we don't have pockets of information that live within one consulting firm or one agency or one company, right? We should be able to have all that information publicly and easily accessible. Um, and we have the technology to do that. That's pretty easy lift. So some are hard, some are easy, but I think within the next five years, we'll see a lot of progress on the technology front. Welcome, everybody, to the EcoBite podcast, uh, where we delve a little deeper into the presentation we just heard from Jesse Marr. Uh, I'm here with my co-host, Liv. I'm Liv Haney, product manager for EcoBot. And we also have another member of the Epic team, uh, Becca Madsen. Go ahead and introduce yourself, Becca. Hi there. I'm the director of the Restoration Economy Center, and I'm a colleague of Jesse Moore, and we have some crossover sometimes that relates to technology and wetlands. Lots of technology, lots of wetlands. Let's get into it. Liv, you, you have a question. Go, go for it. Yes, Jesse, thanks for presenting. I thought uh, you brought up a lot of interesting and important topics um, regarding wetlands, the future of wetland restoration and conservation. Uh, one thing you mentioned on sort of at the end is is uh, data management and data moving from agencies and and stuck in private sectors and um, sort of being held captive by certain uh, elements of of the environmental world. 
Can you explain more how does data currently flow to regulatory agencies? Um, how does it move through the pipeline of, of development and permitting in the country? Yeah, that's a great question. I think Becca and I will probably tag team this one. And maybe one thing to say is, I don't think it's always intentional. Like it's just the nature of how our data infrastructure has been set up. And it was these systems were created prior to the internet in a lot of cases and prior to us having really strong data standards. So you see kind of a hodgepodge depending on where you are in the country, who you're working for and how you're working. Um, But generally what you can imagine is that we have a baseline information that the National Wetland Inventory provides of where wetlands are. We can start to see that anyone has access to that information. And then if I'm a consultant thinking about, well, if I'm trying to do some kind of development project, and if that development projects impacts a wetland, then I'm required to mitigate whatever impact that I might have. Sometimes when I'm doing that planning process, I may or may not have access to -to up-to-date information about where wetlands are from the prior issue of that data being 50 years out of date. Um, And this is when Beck and I actually first got to know each other several years ago, thinking about that planning process. So then I'm doing a project. I have some information. I haven't yet been to the field. And then I send a consultant to go actually survey the landscape and say, all right, what's out there? What is my house or road or transmission line going to impact? And then you can get much higher quality information about where wetlands are, where any type of stream or other ecosystem feature might be. And that detailed information is maybe that then is like sent back to the company that wants to do the initial impact Maybe part of that shared with the Army Corps, which Becca can speak to. And maybe this is what I'll pass to Becca. It's like, what then happens? And where does that data go? Yeah, that's right. Um, So I've been finishing up some research that's based on the Corps of Engineers ORM data set. So that's where they collect all the information about uh, permits and also wetland and stream mitigation banks. And we've been hearing a lot that they are taking a long time and just haven't known why or if that's true or not. So um, so that information comes into this big, huge data set. Um, and then, you know, that data set over there sometimes doesn't speak to another data set over here. So there's this, you know, the data set of all the permits and there's a data set of um, wetland and stream restoration banks. They don't necessarily talk to each other very well. We found some inconsistencies there. And then overall, um, the point I'd like to make is that um, we're not seeing sort of basic project management technology being integrated into the flow of permitting um, at the Corps of Engineers. And I'm, I'm certain that it's probably the same at other agencies as well. So if there's a timeline, if there's a process for paperwork going through and the data going through, it keeps getting hung up or, or stuck on a desk. And it turns out that it's not the agency staff who are m- moving the process forward. It's usually the applicants who are calling and saying, where is this permit? What's going on? And and they're pushing the process instead of the agency pulling the process. Um, And I'll just give my little fact that um, our data analysis showed that it's supposed to take 225 days um, to get a wetland or stream restoration project approved. And it's taking um, on average over a thousand days. So it's, it's, you know, not meeting its targets and everybody knows it. Now we have the data to prove it. <laughs> I wanted to go a little deeper into eDNA. Um, is this the new big dating app? Is this, 
the replacement no. for ancestry.com. What does it I mean? Can, yeah, Explain I can to me <laughs> if you could. Sure. So yeah, I I have a I definitely have a lot of knowledge of environmental DNA because I uh, took on a project to do a training. Uh, an online training about eDNA. And so I had all these professors talk about it, but they talked at such a high level that it was impossible to understand. <laughs> so I had to like translate everything. So it means environmental DNA. And um, that's little bits and pieces of, of your body, of, a, of an animal's body that are shed into the environment. So it's hair, saliva, fur, and, you know, doo-doo and stuff like that. <laughs> And it gets into the environment and it actually has like a lot of uh, a long track track record in academic literature of using eDNA, um, particularly for aquatic species to find out if they're present or not. Um, so some of the uses of this might be if you're trying to track how far along an invasive fish species is coming up the river or something, you can kind of like put little stations and sample that eDNA. Um, and, and the great thing is that the the species doesn't have to be present and you don't have to harm the species to find out where it is. You just scoop up a cup of water, basically. And in that cup of water is the scales and the guts and the blah, 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 right? Um, and then you sort of, you know, process it using some of the same technology that we've used to uh, detect whether or not we have COVID, right? Um, so some of that technology is used in that eDNA process to say, ding, yes, we have the species. No, we don't have the species. And it's even going further than that and into something called metabarcoding, community metabarcoding. And that's where um, as long as you have sort of the map of all the different animals and their, and their genes and their DNA, their code, so to speak, um, you can sort of take a sample, scoop up that water, and not just find one species, but find a whole community of species. So it's really exciting technology. Um, it definitely, we've seen it being used by federal agencies. Not like this is the only thing that we're going to use now, but it's like another tool in the toolbox, so to speak. Becca, who's primarily doing this sampling of eDNA? Who's doing the sampling and analysis of that? I think it's mostly consultants and universities at this point. Probably, you know, it's being driven by universities and the academics, and then they they graduate <laughs> and they sort of bring that technology to the field. And they've got these little backpack samplers, so it's not like you have to just collect it and then send it off to the lab. Um, you can now like analyze it on the spot as well. And um, uh, my my older colleague at my last job, he was he was making a Star Trek reference where they had this little analyzer and they'd go onto a new planet and they'd be like, bloop, bloop, bloop. <laughs> you know, what's what's living here? And we can find out just from that. Um, so I think that's the direction we're heading in. <laughs> it also was... tells you if there's ghosts around. <laughs> <laughs> Cold spots, right? <laughs> so when we talk about permits piling up, it takes the person that submitted the permit to actually get it to move. And then we look at, you know, Florida who took over their 404 uh, regulation and, you know, it, it went so well in New Jersey. It went so well in Michigan. And we're like, okay, cool. States can figure out their wetlands. And, you know, Florida is one giant wetland, I would know. Uh, I come from there. Also afraid of snakes, Jesse. Um, so it's like, what? who needs to motivate this change? Because it's like, the states seem to have it under control. So in some ways, Florida kind of, you know, I don't know if they're still figuring out how to do it. 
uh, if they're developing an internal technology that seems like it, you know, could help them move things along. But, you know, up to this point, it, it seems like it hasn't gone too well. Um, so does it need to be federal or do you think um, it needs to be driven by states? I think you might be waiting a while if it's federal, right? <laughs> Just kidding. That's true too. That's true too. Well, you know, and with the IIJA passed, um, a lot of money That's is going great. into uh, the permitting process, uh, as we talked about in our last ecobyte session. So, uh, if that even factors in, but I'd love to hear your perspective on that. I mean, I think you know, there's many pieces of this puzzle. I think the one thing that makes sense from a federal level, and I'll just beat my tech drum, is the digital infrastructure to be able to see all of this information in one place and the project management type programs that don't make sense to replicate differently for every single state because a lot of these consulting firms, one, work across different states. So it's hard if you have to submit something different in every place. Two, it becomes hard to aggregate that information. And three, we know that wetlands don't have political boundaries. They often might be at the intersection of two different states. Um, and when you think about projects like the Chesapeake Bay that require multi-state approach, or even the Gulf of Mexico, right? You have many states that feed into this overall wetland restoration goal. Um, and that type of information should be made easily accessible and of the same format across all different states. Then, you know, each state can put their own flavor on it. But like, what is the baseline of information and quality of digital infrastructure that needs to be there? So then all states can thrive, whether they have the capacity to do it themselves or not. That's awesome, Jesse. That's helpful perspective to sort of put everything into. I have a follow-up, I guess, two-parter question. So the first part is, uh, I also worked uh, previously for a large-scale environmental consulting firm. Uh, what I noticed while I was doing field surveys and just the people that I was working with and who was training me in wetland sciences is that I found that it was definitely an, an older crowd. There wasn't a lot of young up and coming wetland scientists that were um, <laughs> just like taking the reins over. So how, how, how does pushing innovation work in a field that's still sort of stuck in the past in a lot of ways? And, and how can we make that more accessible to as many people as possible and, and really make it easy for them to follow and understand? The other part of the question sort of is permitting reform is is the only thing I've seen really regarding um, environmental news, but apart from environmental disasters and emergencies, but um, in terms of what's up and coming with environmental permitting and EPA reform and um, the IAJA is all about permitting reform and, and the understanding that in order to have meet clean energy goals or um, meet just energy infrastructure goals, period, we have to have permitting reform to be able to speed through these processes. So how do we get the innovation into the hands of the scientists and um, those that are doing the analysis and doing the surveys? And then how do we get that survey data pushed through permitting so that we can actually build things? This is... A phenomenal question. And one of the things that we think a lot about on the tech side and kind of what brought me here was, it's not that we don't have innovative technology. Like, I feel like we do have a lot of the solutions to some of the things that we're focused on. And it's really a cultural shift. And when we break down the cultural shift and our technology program thinks about like people, process, 
And sometimes it's data. Um, the people is what are the skill sets that you want to hire for in these agencies? So who's on the other end of that? And it's hard, as I was saying, from a technology perspective, if the person that you're talking to is like, I've never heard of satellite imagery because it's a, you know, a newer thing. Or if you're hiring junior level GIS staff, of which I was one, um, and not the senior level positions that can think about innovation and data strategies more holistically and set the tone for the agency. So we think about the leadership positions. We think about then the staff, you know, the general staff. But then also a third critical point um, that we think about are the points of entry for technology or data innovation. Um, So where partnerships offices that maybe are interagency by nature, because, you know, my fun stat that, you know, Becca had hers is there's, you know, 25 federal entities that manage water data. We know that environmental agencies have complementary and overlapping data needs most of the time. So how do we have one partnerships office that is able to properly vet and evaluate this innovation and make sense for these 15 programs. And that can kind of then help us be a bit more strategic and thoughtful about where and how to use innovation. Um, and then I think the the second part of that question is right. Um, what I notice is there's actually not a ton of like regulatory or policy change that needs to happen as much as just like the education and those other aspects related to the leadership and teams that could be helpful um, in sparking innovation or using it where necessary. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll take on the sort of the streamlining permitting part of things. Um, so that's an area that our organization is definitely really interested in because we, we think restoration um, should be permitted quickly. It's environmentally ben- beneficial, yada, yada. Okay. Um, so, uh, one of the things that we've been hearing as we're starting to have informational interviews with um, people who are doing restoration projects is we keep hearing that one of the major um, barriers or the things that slow down permitting has been just a lack of resources at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and other agencies and the turnover and the training that they need. Um, so I have a lot of empathy um, for thinking about those staff, thinking what they have to go through. They're probably like the bad guy on everybody's radar. <laughs> you know, nobody's like, yay, permitting person. Um, so I, I think we, you know, had to come at it with a lot of empathy and think about what they're going through. So, so that's one of the things that keeps coming up is have more resources and maybe some of that IIJA money is, is being funneled there and that would be great. The other thing I think is making things more accountable, having leadership that say this is a priority, um, and, and then also introducing technology to help out with project management. Um, and one of the, a really good example that I've seen that's come out recently is um, <laughs> a project that's called PEEP in Virginia, and it stands for Permitting and Enhancement and Evaluation Platform. And uh, what it looks like to me is a, is a pizza tracker, like the Domino's pizza tracker. You order your pizza and it's like, okay. Oh, I'm very familiar. You know, <laughs> very, very familiar. We have pizza night every Friday at our family. So. <laughs> now that's technology I can wrap my head around. <laughs> exactly. If you can, so I have a blog, it's called, if you can track a pizza, you can track a permit. <laughs> so, so, you know, it, you know, the, the, the pizza goes in the oven or the, the permit comes on the desk. Um, it gets assigned to a staff member, right? And then it, it's going in the oven and then, you know, it's ready for you, right? So that's kind of what this Virginia PEEP program does. And it has this really wonderful um, public transparency. It says, 
the permit's here. It's with our agency, or now it's gone out for review with the, the state or the federal fish and wildlife agency, and now it's over there. And in addition to that, it also has like automated emails that say, this is the deadline. Hey, you know, you're a week out from the deadline. Have you done it? You know, here's, here's where you can get to the information. It might even have sort of a cloud storage system so that everybody's going to the same place. So I think it's just a, a, a brilliant and, you know, it's a no brainer kind of technology that I hope would be saving time with the agencies as well. Um, you're not taking that time answering a request of where's my permit, where's my permit, or even getting blamed um, for, for delaying a permit when it's not even the agency's fault. You know, maybe it is on the desk of the applicant. And, you know, but if you're not tracking that, you don't know where it's at. So that's one of the things that I think is, is really great about um, streamlining permitting processes is creating that accountability and trans well through transparency creating accountability but also bringing in that technology to to kind of streamline that process so yeah yeah um well i want to like i guess i just want to figure out like so you're talking about data sets like the nwi being 30 plus years old other data sets being 50 plus years old like what was the situation at that point in time that allowed for such a robust data set to, you know, be created, like every wetland in our country. Uh, also, you know, uh, I assume 30 to 50 years ago, we did not have the technologies that we have now. So it's like, what was the situation that allowed it to happen then? And now that we're in our situation where like we have technology that could do it in you know, a 10th of the time, let's say. Um, and we're just not, uh, it's just kind of blowing my mind. Like what, what caused it to happen then? And it's, why is it not happening now? Yeah. I think Becca and I can also probably tag team this question, but, um, maybe you guys are like pro wrestlers. <laughs> Get them in the headlock, tap them in. Boom. <laughs> um, but maybe just to, to explain this a little bit further, right. Um, so we have the National Wetlands Inventory, but the timeliness of the information for each state or region varies. So in mm -hmm. some parts of the state, the information is much older than in other parts of the state that or other parts of the U.S. that have been updating that information over time. Where and how um, that information has been updated really varies, I would say, region to region. And I couldn't give you, at least maybe Becca knows, like why certain areas are are better than others. But for example, we saw a proposal from Minnesota where they were going to take $10 million in 10 years just to update their state's map. And you're like, that is too much money and way too much time. Like we need much higher quality information now. Um, what I've heard about how this information was created in the past was literally like people looking out the side of planes and trying to map where they were. They take oh aerial gosh. imagery and are like <laughs> manually drawing it depending on the types of information. And I think the one thing that Becca and I have also been thinking a lot about is like, you know, there are dozens of wetland classifications and the National Wetlands Inventory wants you to have all those classifications where sometimes depending on where you are in the decision-making process, you just need to know likelihood of wetland or not. And then maybe I can avoid that entirely. And then when I need to do field work, I can do the much more detailed thing. So I think, you know, what is the world in which we just have a baseline likelihood or not, and then higher quality information supplemented by field visits. 
And Beck, I don't know if you want to add uh, anything to that. Yeah. So you mentioned that the state of Minnesota, was it? Was going to yeah. spend $10 million. Yeah. Um, Could have been Michigan. I can fact check myself. But it's, <laughs> okay. It's a state. Yeah. There you go. Um, so at my last job, I was collaborating with the Chesapeake Conservancy and um, um, to use artificial intelligence, deep learning, actually, um, to predict and identify where wetlands were um, based on satellite data and the different like bands of light that you can see and you can't see, um, along with LIDAR data, which is sort of like point cloud data um, that creates like a 3D terrain and then some other, um, some other data as well, imagery, I think too. And anyway, um, so they take, took all that data, they applied deep learning and got a 94% accuracy rate, which is pretty amazing. And they'd like to expand that model to the entire Chesapeake Bay. And I want to say the price tag on that is, is you know, order of magnitude, it's, it's around 500000 for five states, a huge area in the mid-Atlantic region. So I think there could be tremendous cost savings in, in using deep learning and, and newer technologies to kind of you know, predict where things are. Now, that needs training data, right? So um, <laughs> good data in good data out, garbage data in, garbage data out. Um, and at the last company that I worked for, there were a lot of electric power companies who were collecting wetland data. And we thought, awesome, we have this like wonderful data set. We'll use this to be a training data set for the model. And then we found out that the data was like arbitrarily cut off by the edge of the right-of-way. You know, <laughs> transmission lines have those sort of open areas that are about a hundred feet or so. Um, so we couldn't like train the machine with this or, or else it would think that all wetlands had a straight edge to it, right? So you need good training data in order to do this. And But every single project that needs a wetland delineation is collecting that data, right? Um, and once it becomes a finalized permit, that should be public information. Um, but it's in essence, it's not because it's probably saved on a PDF file and then you'd have to do a Freedom of Information Act request to get it. So I think, you know, it, a wonderful idea, if we could get there, would be for all that, all, the, all those thousands, millions of dollars that are spent on field data and creating that and collecting that, that goes to a federal agency, if those could be in the public domain in the future. So that's that's my wish list. Jesse, I definitely did um, a lot of the likely, not likely wetland presence surveys um, with my experience in consulting. And they were really helpful for planning purposes. And a lot of times we would use just publicly available data to, to do this sort of analysis of a probability of wetland presence. Um, and that helped engineers get a better design so that we would have a smaller area to actually go survey. Okay. I also, so in, in my experience in at university, I worked on a couple of citizen science projects um, using crowdsourced or uh, community sourced information. Um, I actually used a lot of COCA-RAS data, which is Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network. Um, so I was wondering if thinking about maybe hobbyist COCA RAS is really popular with farmers and people that are out there actively taking this rain data, um, precipitation information already, and now they can just contribute that to other people in their area. Um, I was wondering if you thought that there would be any space for that for wetlands in the future, potentially, whether it's just not like 
a likely or not likely presence, but thinking of people like fishermen that are going out and, and trudging through areas where they're going to then go fish. Like they're already walking through the area. Can we just get them to take a quick map and, and upload something? Um, do you see any future for that? I mean, I would say yes, uh, 100%. And I think that gets to another aspect that we we think about on the tech team is, right, how do you get government agencies to be more amendable to using third-party information or community science data? Um, and so I would say all of that kind of goes hand in hand, but that we have a completely underutilized resource of people that are doing this already. And if we have the technology to easily capture that information on your phone and upload it to a central repository, which we do, then the next step is then how do you operationalize that into decision-making and and or get comfortable with that even existing. And whether it's used for official or unofficial purposes, we should at least have that information in a larger repository. So yes, and let's figure out how. Yeah. And I did a pre- previous research project on citizen science um, species data, because a lot of folks were coming at it like from from a place of concern. Like what if somebody says there's a yada yada species over here and dangerous species here just just to hold a project and it's not true. I think the best and most widely used citizen science projects and platforms have some kind of check in place to make sure that it's like, oh, you see a zebra? I don't think so. <laughs> or, or you see a certain bird at this time of year, that that's out of its range. It's not normal. Are you sure? And we'll have a real person um, go and check that record and, and ensure that that's correct or not. So what we're seeing in the research that I did previously was that um, uh, citizen science apps like eBird and iNaturalist are, are you know, they can be considered research grade in some in some situations, and they have been used in models uh, for bald and golden eagles with the Fish and Wildlife Service, and I see them cited in listing decisions for endangered species and things like that. So I think they're just getting they're getting more widely adopted. And if you can address, you know, what is that concern? Is and is there any safeguard for those concerns? I think it'll just keep on moving forward. Well, great. Uh, you guys cited so many things and they're going straight back to your website because you have so much amazing content there. Um, we'll have a bunch of links uh, in a, the description of this podcast, but please check out the Environmental Policy Innovation Center. They are doing great work there in writing amazing articles and Jesse and Becca are a part of that. And thank you so much for joining us today. And, having a discussion for EcoBite. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Of course. All right, y'all. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, guys. Great.